Well, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let's go ahead and pray. Holy and gracious God, you are our guide and our destination. Center us and make of us a holy temple to offer you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. These two readings that we're wrestling with today, 1 Peter chapter 2 and then this 14th chapter of John, deal very directly with our anxieties and our desires and our hopes and dreams for the future. And in both cases, they seem to say, hey, pump the brakes. It's going to be okay. You may not understand it right now, but it really is going to be okay. And in John, it's simply not enough. You see Thomas and Philip really sort of saying, actually, could you kind of lay it out for me? Can you, can you explain to me how this is going to be okay? Because from over here, in reality, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be okay. And Jesus is really bound by the limits of human language and has to say, well, if you can't take my word for it, uh, we can look at the things that we've accomplished together. You can look at the things that led us to this moment seems that things are looking up, things are going to be okay. But that is this impossible task that we're asked to do as people of faith, is to look at the material conditions in which we live and to yet have hope and believe that things are going to be okay. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural these days. Everybody loves a cynic in our day and age. This uh, reading from Peter is very special to me. Uh, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon uh, was a fundamentalist and had some pretty funny ideas. He was really one of the first celebrity preachers. Uh, he would preach to huge gatherings, uh, thousands of people. But this verse from uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 7, Spurgeon preached on that for his very first sermon. When he was 16 years old, he was asked to preach. And he would do the, the classic move. He'd pull one little tiny piece of a text out, and then he'd talk about it for two hours. But the verse that he chose to preach on is, to you for whom he is precious. Charles Spurgeon was 16 years old. He was on fire. He loved Jesus. He knew what he wanted to do with his life. And there was nothing in him that didn't, fully love Jesus Christ. He was like a walking embodiment of that great gospel hymn. You can have the whole world. Just give me Jesus. And it's a beautiful sermon. It's very much a sermon preached by a 16-year-old. But he wanted to convey to them how precious Jesus was to him. Because in Jesus, he found all the hope that he needed for his life ahead of him. The verse before that, though, is the one that I wrestle with the most. The author of 1 Peter is kind of picking and choosing pieces of the Hebrew Bible. He's using parts of Psalm 118, uh, Isaiah chapter 8. He's even pulling a little bit from Daniel where he's talking about building this temple, a living temple, and he's talking about Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And we all know, hopefully, what a cornerstone is. We all know what a living temple is, I hope. That's us. In the UCC, we're very fond of this whole priesthood of all believers idea. 
The idea is that in each other, we can have peace and comfort, Jesus Christ alone being the cornerstone. But there's this weird verse in there where he writes, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a hard phrase to understand. Because what does it mean in the context of Peter to be put to shame? Shame is a very complicated word. It is a word that doesn't translate well from one language to the next. In some societies, especially when I was living in the Middle East, when I was living in Palestine and and in Jordan, shame was intimately connected to honor. You wanted to be a person of honor. I'm fond of giving this example, but if you travel to the Levant today, if you go to countries like uh, like Jordan or or, or like uh, Palestine, you won't see um, unhoused people the way that you do here in, in America. They don't have, so we can go downtown into Grand Rapids right now and we can walk down the street and we can see people sleeping in doorways, eating out of dumpsters, sleeping rough. You don't encounter that in Middle Eastern countries. There are no homeless people in Palestine. I never saw a single homeless person, a single unhoused person when I was in uh, Amman, which is a city of a million people. There's a million people in Amman, Jordan. And you kind of puzzled it. How can it be? Well, they solved it. Well, no, (laughs) because in that culture, the shame or the crime of, of homelessness doesn't fall on the person. It falls on their family, on their family. And so if you had a brother or sister, a son or daughter, a mother or father, and they were sleeping rough, that was your shame. That was your fault. And that was your family's dishonor. So you see these big intergenerational homes. And I saw it also when I lived in rural parts of Mexico. I would see uh, a lot of the times there might be um, a family member, an uncle, an aunt, a friend, somebody close to the family who was struggling with addiction or struggling with some other mental health concern or mental health crisis, where in the United States of America, it's likely that that person would have been sleeping on the street, but the family wouldn't tolerate it. So they would be staying in a spare room or uh, sometimes in the case of my wonderful friend Paco, he stayed in a garden shed um, and he was perfectly happy there. He was, you know, taking care of his dogs um, and they took care of him. But in the U.S., we understand shame as a very personal thing because we live in an individualistic society. We live in this individual culture where the shame of poverty or the shame of addiction or the shame of of, being mentally unwell is on the individual, not on their people. And that was true in the time of Peter, so I was confused by this verse, be put to shame, what does it mean? When we look at the Greek, uh, it says if you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you won't be put to shame. The word is, is kataskuno. Um, kata just means to put something into something, right? To put, you, if I pick up this Bible and I put it into that hallway, I'm, kata is the verb, just means to place into. And so, um, Skuno, the second part, which is, uh, it comes from the ahiskos, is the word that we translate as disgrace or shame or uh, humiliation. Um, And to understand this, I looked for some contemporary Greek examples, because this is a word that is used in Greece today uh, amongst Greek people. And I read the journal of a uh, Greek uh, missionary, who had traveled to sub-Saharan Africa and uh, was reflecting on the poverty 
that he saw, the hunger uh, and, uh, and the, the pain and suffering uh, because of the children that were starving. And he said, it is our shame. It is our shame. He used the word, the same word, ahiskos, shame, to see that hunger in that area. And what he was saying was, this is our fault. This is our fault. It's a very alien concept for Americans who, in good sort of libertarian fashion, are used to thinking, well, if I didn't have anything to do with it, I don't have any responsibility in cleaning it up. So that word shame, it talks about our fear, our concern for our implicit or implication in the pain and suffering of other people. And Jesus knows that we're going to deal with this personally as people of faith. He leads us today. He says to his disciples, it is plain as language as he can muster. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. But how, Lord? We can see the poverty on our own doorstep. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God. Believe in me. You will know the place where I am going. There is this omnipresent anxiety that exists in the hearts and minds of just about every human being I've ever had the opportunity to know. And the anxiety at the root of it is this idea that we cannot know the future, so how on earth are we ever supposed to know that we're safe? How on earth are we supposed to know that we're secure? We can't know the future, so how can I tell myself, how do I get out of bed in the morning knowing that bad things could happen and that likely bad things will happen to me? You introduce the love of children into this equation and it's paralyzing, it's paralyzing. So we do things, we try to use all of our powers, all of our abilities to shape a future based on the present so that we don't have to be afraid. Insecurity, fear of humiliation, fear of being put to shame, fear of dishonor. All of these things cloud our judgment and they cause us to take action in order to secure the future that we want. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that, you know. You don't have to let your heart be troubled. You don't have to worry. When um, I think about my activities of daily living and the things that I do or don't do, the risks that I take or don't take, it's astounding to me how much it is, is rooted in my fear of what's going to happen in the future. Even though I know that Jesus says I don't have anything to fear. I think that the solution to this fear and anxiety is, is gratitude. It's exactly what I was saying to the kids. We know psychologically speaking that gratitude, the practice of daily gratitude is the master key that unlocks mental well-being and a sense of purpose and life. The Bible, the blessed thing, grace, cover to cover, is filled with songs of gratitude. Be grateful. Be grateful. God has put you into this creation and named you good and named it good and provided you with everything that you need. One of my favorite comedians, Burt Kreider, uh, don't judge me if you go and listen to his stuff. He's, <laughs> he's salty. Uh, 
But he's not, he'll be the first to admit it. He's funny because he's not very smart. And uh, the fact that he knows that about himself is one of the things that makes him so funny. And he reminds me of myself in a lot of ways. And he's, Bert has become pretty famous, uh, even by his own estimation. But he's a great guy. Uh, he doesn't make a lot of the same bad choices that come with celebrity, especially for men, <laughs> especially in this culture. And in a very rare and touching moment in an interview somebody was doing with, with Bert, they asked him, how did you, how do you, what are you, how, how do you avoid all of this stuff? How are you avoiding all of this, these catastrophes that seem to happen to, to, to famous men when they begin to become, um, you know, wealthy and, and celebrated? And he said, you know, it was very sweet. He said, right at the beginning of my career, when it was starting to take off, I was, uh, it was a beautiful morning, and I was laying in bed uh, with my wife next to me, and our two beautiful little children were, were laying in bed with me, and it was this incredible moment where I had everything that I could ever want, right there, at that moment. And I said, whatever happens, I'm never going to do anything to screw this up. He had the foresight to know that where he was in that very moment, he had the foresight to be grateful for what he'd been given. And he had the foresight to know that that was what was best in life. Him, there, comfortable, in a warm bed, next to the person who loved him, their two kids. And that, was his, that became his, his North Star. He's like, I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize that. I'm not going to do anything to screw that up. Because there's nothing better for, than that in his, in his life, in his world. But we're chasing we're chasing after ghosts and phantoms because we want to somehow have some insurance policy against pain in the future. The, this desire, this anxiety for security, um, it takes, I think, two forms. Uh, and, I, and, and the first one, and the more nefarious of the two, I think, is a desire for, for, for celebrity. A desire to be celebrated by strangers, <laughs> a desire to be known uh, so that you can change people's minds, a desire to be popular, right? That'll plunge us right back into the icy cold waters of high school. <laughs> a desire to have people like you, because maybe you didn't get enough of that when you were a kid. I understand it. That's something that's out there. But it's a, it's a, it's a fruitless endeavor. Um, I had somebody say something. I'm fond of telling people, just you know, make a list of 10 people whose opinions about you you care about and pay attention to that list. And if somebody criticizes you, go and see if their name is on your list. Um, and if it's not, you don't have to listen to them. I heard it put an even better way. A very wise uh, woman, I heard her preaching, and she said, if you, wouldn't, <laughs> if you wouldn't go to them for their advice, why are you accepting their criticism?" That hit me like a rung bell. But we want it. We want to be loved, and we don't want to receive criticism because we invest a lot in not being humiliated. We invest a lot in being celebrated by strangers and other people. To set that aside for a minute, to get back to this idea of safety and security, that's the one I think that is most common. We think that if I had this thing whatever it is, $10,000 in the bank, uh, if I, my mortgage paid off, if I had a tenure uh, in my department, if I had this thing, 
then I wouldn't have to worry about tomorrow. The disciples are saying the same thing to Jesus. Give us the thing. Show us the way. Make it plain. Give it to us so it can never be lost or taken away. For his part, Jesus says, well, you already have the thing. You don't need anything else. I've given it to you. You've got it. You can relax. I had a friend in college who was addicted to online shopping. (laughs) And that was a weird thing to be addicted to at the time because they had just invented online shopping. That's how old I am. You used to have to get, like, you used to have to make a list, like, with a pen and a paper and then put it in your pocket and then get in a car and go someplace. Sometimes multiple places. And if you lost your list, you were you're toast. You didn't, know, you, would, you didn't know what you wanted anymore. <laughs> Even though you were the one that made the list. But then they invented online shopping. And I remember the first time they came out with online shopping during the dot-com boom, I remember all the baby boomers in my life said, Never do it. Nope. No way. That's not safe. You're going to give your credit card information to a website? Are you out of your mind? You know who the largest demographic of online shoppers in America is today? (laughs) But it's nice. It's nice to be able to buy things online. I know it's hard. I live next to one of those Amazon fulfillment centers. Uh, It's huge. It looks like a space station. And there's thousands of people in there. And they are working their butts off to fill those orders around the clock. Every time I click that little pay now button on the Amazon app, I always imagine some like Rube Goldberg machine of pain like activating six miles down the road at that fulfillment center as like dozens of underpaid workers like are scrambling to make sure that I get, you know, some glue sticks or whatever dumb thing I put in there. (laughs) Setting that aside, he, my friend in college, he was addicted to online shopping. And they had this website, they still have it, it's out there, it's called eBay. And it combines online shopping with auctions, which are another form of addiction. And it was ruining his life and derailing his college experience. And he went to, he actually saw a therapist for it. And uh, it, they, the therapist fixed him. And I said, what might you, how'd you, what'd you do? How'd, how'd you stop doing it, you know? And he said, you know, um, the therapist taught me that uh, I already own everything in the world. I said, oh, is that so? You, know, you're, you, you deliver sandwiches with me out of the back of a truck. I'm surprised that you... I said, no, I already own everything in the world. I keep it all in this place called eBay. And anytime I want to look at it, I can just pull it up, and there it is. There's my thing that I own. I have it. I don't need to touch it. I can look at a picture of it. And if I really, really need it, really need it for real, then I can put the money in and take the thing out. But I gotta remember to put it back when I'm done with it. The therapist had shifted his vision from one of scarcity, which says, I have to have the thing. I have to have the thing in my hand right here in front of me or else it doesn't exist. It might as well not be real. If I can't have the thing and put it in my pocket or stick it in the closet or bury it under the pile of garbage I have in my garage, then it's not real. I don't actually have it. The therapist had shifted his understanding to one that simply said, no, you have the thing. It's there. Don't worry about it. You're fine. And it had changed his life, and it changed his understanding of the world from a vision of scarcity and immediacy, material pain, to one of abundance. Abundance. Jesus the author of Peter are saying, you have the thing. You have it. 
I know you want to touch it, I know you want to hold it, but you've got it. You don't need to worry about it. Now set your hearts, your sights on other things. We've got work to do. We've got stuff we've got to get done here. Our time's limited. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own, Jesus says, but the Father speaks these words. Who's the Father? The Creator. The Creator of this whole project. So don't be troubled, because what I'm telling you is God's honest truth. The world is a place of abundance. There is enough to go around. Don't listen to what the capitalists say. There's plenty out there. It's not a dog-eat-dog world. It is a world of goodness and abundance. The only thing that stands between us, oftentimes, and the poor of this world who need what they need and don't receive it, is human grift, sin and uh, greed. Greed. The Bible doesn't promise us we'll be millionaires. It simply promises us that we'll have enough and that that is good. Us, like that comedian Bert, laying in bed on that beautiful morning, being absolutely filled with gratitude and joy for the thing that we have, and knowing that it's enough, that it's enough. Well, why? Why do we do all of this? Why do we remind ourselves that we have enough? Why do we stop living in fear and anxiety, and why do we embrace this posture of open-handed abundance, joy, and gratitude for everything? And Jesus says to glorify the Creator. That's it. That's why you are. That's why any of this is. So that the Father may be glorified. So that the Creator of the heavens and earth may be glorified. We express gratitude. We pray before we eat. We give thanks for what we have as an acknowledgement that we believe that Creator was telling the truth when they said that this thing, this thing we're doing here is good. This creation, this universe, this cosmic miracle, it's a good thing. It brings glory to God when you live with a generous heart into the abundance of God's creation. Nowhere in here does it say that it's going to be easy and nowhere in here does it say that we're not gonna slip back into old attitudes of scarcity and fear Nowhere does it say we're not going to fall prey to the idolatry of thinking that we're right and everybody else is wrong, or the idolatry of thinking that we are worthy of universal acclaim and celebration, or the idolatry that everything uh, is going to be perfect every single day. But it says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. When you can do that, you're, you're, you're praying. You're giving thanks to God. You're praising the Creator. You're doing it right. You're lifting God's heart. And the other thing that you're doing, and I know this from a scientific uh, perspective, from a psychological perspective, is that you are improving your circumstances in life. So the way, the truth, the life is one of abundant gratitude for all that God has done for us and all that God will do for us. Gratitude gives praise to God. And the way of Jesus Christ, if it is anything, is the way of abundant gratitude and joy. Amen.